You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, well, if you would now turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And if you're using a pew Bible, one of those hardback black Bibles, we're on page 966. So 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Um, this text, I'm going to focus on verses 14 and 15, where Maggie read from earlier, but um, I'm going to kind of reference parts of all from verses 11 through 21. Uh, since Maggie already read it, I'm not going to read it again, but it'd be good to have your um, scriptures open there so you can reference those places. This text is going to focus our prayer theme, our 31 days of prayer and fasting for the next month and then also throughout the rest of the year. And in particular, we're focusing on that phrase that's in verse 14, Christ's love compels us. And depending on what translation of the Bible you're using right now, um, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, or as I often preach from the ESV Bible, um, you might be reading that and thinking to yourself, wait, mine says something different. And so I do want to address that a little bit. Um, In the ESV, it actually uses the phrase, for the love of Christ controls us. But in the NIV, from where Maggie read earlier, the the phrase is Christ's love compels us. And so you might be wondering, well, what's the difference? Why is it um, different in that way? And I'll talk about that today. Because I actually think uh, the difference helps us to understand the meaning of the word. Neither translation, I think, chose the wrong word. uh, But actually, together, they help us get a more complete picture of what it means for Christ's love to compel us. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. But right now, I'd love to pray for us before we jump in the text. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. Um, God, I I just am so thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us first and foremost in Jesus, the word incarnate. And also, you've told us about yourself through your word, the scriptures. And so um, help us here now as we open them. Help us to understand what you have for us. I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes, that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, my first vehicle that I ever owned was a 1986 Ford Ranger, and I called it Big Red uh, because it was red. There was more red than rust, but, you know, barely at some points. Um, And I loved that truck. It was a four-cylinder engine, four-wheel drive, five-speed manual transmission. I loved the things. I'd whip around these backcountry roads, and sometimes I'd go in the ditch. But the nice thing, it was so light, and it had four-wheel drive. I'd just drive out and keep going. Just this great truck for a high school kid in, like, you know, rural Minnesota. Um, But there was one really big problem. The gas gauge stopped working at some point in time, and so I started running out of gas all the time. Uh, and I hated that. So I'd get stuck on the side of the road. I'd have to get in touch with my parents. And I, I had this workaround where I realized how many miles I could get on a full tank of gas. And so then my odometer became my gas gauge. And I'd reset it each time I'd fill up the gas tank. Um, but I, so I loved this truck. But right, running out of fuel is kind of a problem. Now, fast forward several years, and I was working for North Dakota State University, uh, where I went to school. I was in the last year of my undergrad and working as an intern in the admission office. And uh, they provided a vehicle for me to drive to all these different schools throughout the Midwest. 
and right, contrast that with the car I had growing up. This car was well-maintained. The state, you know, it was a state fleet vehicle. They paid for all my gas. I had all the fuel I needed. I could get everywhere I needed to go. But the problem at that point is I had no GPS. My phone didn't have GPS, so I didn't always know where I was going. And so I went on this one trip for two weeks out to Montana uh, to go to all these different college fairs. Uh, in order to go, I had printed this like stack of papers off of MapQuest with every single destination for my entire two-week trip printed out in order, stacked together, every turn in alignment. Because at this point, right, the problem was not no fuel. The problem was maybe figuring, not knowing where to go. And these two things become really important when you're driving a car. Fuel to get you where you want to go and a destination and directions to get there. Now, those two things, keep those in mind. They'll help us understand what compel means. And I'm going to use words like motivation and mission. Fuel for a car is like the motivation for the work that we're called to do as followers of Jesus. And the directions is like the mission. It gives us the direction for where we're going to go. And so in 2023, as we think about this prayer, here's what we're praying together, that River City Church would be motivated by Christ's love to pursue his mission as ministers of reconciliation. And there we have the fuel and the directions. Motivation, Christ's love, mission, ministers of reconciliation. And so I want to talk about maybe compel and control a little bit more in these two words. Uh, the word there that's translated as compel in the NIV or control in the ESV, it's unique within the New Testament. It only occurs one other place in the New Testament, uh, and it has a range of meaning. And I actually think Paul sometimes used these words that had a range of meaning to actually help us get this more full understanding of what he's trying to get at. And these two words together give us this complete picture of what Paul means there. Compel here is less like being shot out of a cannon, and it's more like being controlled and constrained so that we are compelled in a particular direction. Uh, Minnesota is known for its majestic lakes. It's also known for its iconic rivers. And one of the differences between lakes and rivers, and I'm sure there are many more than I'm aware of, but one of the differences that comes to my mind is that rivers are flowing and lakes are generally pretty still and sedentary. And one of the reasons that lakes flow is because they have river banks to help guide and direct the water. And if water were to kind of come over the top of those banks, at some point in time, the energy would be diffused and it wouldn't move anywhere anymore. So in fact, the banks not only control and constrain that river, but they also help to compel the water forward. Christ's love works like that. And when you think about these words like mission and motivation and how they map out these words compel and control, uh, compel is like the motivation. We are compelled, we are motivated by the love of Christ. Control is kind of like the mission. It gives us the direction. It tells us where we are going. They are both absolutely necessary for us as followers of Jesus and necessary for us to understand what it means to be compelled by Christ. And if you think about someone, if you, if you put motivation and mission into a matrix and you think about these two words in relationship together, if you think about somebody on the top left quadrant who is high on motivation, but low on mission. They are highly compelled. They're someone that might be zealous and very active, but with really no direction. They're someone who might do a lot, but with no real purpose. And in fact, sometimes they actually might begin to undermine the purpose altogether. Maybe some types of people come to mind here. Pharisees and legalists can be like this. 
highly motivated, but not necessarily moving in the direction of God's kingdom, or those who might become crusaders for a cause, and at some point in time, the cause becomes more important to them than Christ himself. These are people highly motivated, but not necessarily moving in the right direction. On the other hand, you might see somebody who's high on mission, but low on motivation. They know where they're going. They have a clear direction, but they don't get anywhere, like driving a vehicle without fuel. They're good at doing the right thing, but in the end, they don't do anything. So the result is that they're no good for the mission anyway. But if we are high on both motivation and mission, if we are compelled and controlled by the love of Christ, then we'll be agents of reconciliation in the world. And that is what we're praying for in 2023 here at River City Church. So we talk about these two dynamics, to be motivated by Christ's love. We're motivated by Christ's love because Jesus died for us. We no longer live for ourselves, as Paul says in verse 15, but for the one who died in our place. This is expressed in many different ways throughout verses 11 to 21, and I just want to focus on two of them this afternoon. The first is that we're motivated because we know our identity. We know who we are. Verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's responding to people who doubt him, who doubt who he is. They, they doubt his identity as an apostle. They doubt his identity as a follower of Jesus. They doubt his message the gospel that he's come to preach. They have questions about this. And so Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, both in 1st and in 2nd Corinthians, he's often responding to them. And he's helping them to understand why his message is credible and why who he is is someone that they should listen to. And you'll hear words like super apostles, these people that he's kind of um, running up against in Corinth who want to undermine his mission. Well, he, he's defending himself to some degree. He's responding to that. But what he's saying here is basically, hey, I know who I am. And God knows who I am. We, what we are is known to God, he says. He, know who, he knew who he was, and he trusted that God knew who he was. He didn't have any question about that. And if God knows who we are, and if we are confident in what God has said about who we are, then Paul is saying, hey, I, I don't, it doesn't matter what you think about who I am. It doesn't matter your assessment. His identity did not depend on their assessment. But he does say he hopes that it will be made clear to their conscience as well. He wants them to know who he is. He wants it to be clear to them, but his identity is not dependent upon it. And this is helpful for us if we are going to be compelled by Christ's love this year. What if we lived this way before our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our friends, confident in who we are in Christ, knowing our identity, motivated by this, It doesn't matter what someone else's assessment of who we are is. What if we were confident in the way that we follow Jesus and live as followers of him, kingdom people in this world, not dependent on what other people think? The second way that we're motivated is we're motivated by Jesus dying in our place. The love of Jesus compels Paul because he is convinced that Jesus had died for him in his place. We see this in verses 14 and 15, and also in verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
This is one of the clearest verses in the Bible for what is known as the substitutionary death of Christ. And what that means is just simply, substitutionary means that Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. He took our place for the death that we deserved. The one who knew no sin, being Jesus, became sin in our place on the cross. So that in exchange, we would get his righteousness. We would be made right before God. And these two things get traded. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. He died in our place. This is the substitute that he was for us. Now, God didn't give us just instructions and advice in how we could be made right before him. Jesus came to die in our place to free us. And there's nothing more motivating than someone giving up their life for another. In Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, there are two men there, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, and they both loved the same woman, Lucy Manet. But Lucy chooses to marry Charles. Later in the story, during the French Revolution, Charles is thrown into prison, and he awaits his own execution by the guillotine. And Sidney is compelled to do something, and so he visits Charles in prison, and he drugs him, and has him carried out, and he stays in his place. When a young seamstress who is also there on death row notices what has happened and realizes that Sidney had taken Charles' place, she, she was amazed by his sacrifice, and she asked him to hold her hand to help give her strength. She was deeply moved by this substitutionary sacrifice, and it wasn't even for her. And when we realize that Jesus did the very same thing for us, it changes everything. And our motivation to live for him becomes a central feature of our lives. And so we want to be motivated by Christ's love this year. If we want that to happen, then we need to be reminded of it regularly. We need to help call that to our mind. That's why we gather together. That's why we sing songs of worship, hear God's word preached. That's why we celebrate communion. And it's why this year we're challenging you at the beginning of the year to take the 15-minute challenge so that each day you would spend those 15 minutes with the Lord reminding yourself of who he is, the story that we are a part of as told in the scriptures, reminding ourselves that Jesus died in our place and that God has loved us enough to send his son to die. See, we're not asking you to take the 15-minute challenge so that you can earn God's love, but because God has already loved you in Christ. And we want to know that love more clearly. We want to know Jesus more. We want to understand our identity so that we can be motivated by Christ's love, compelled by Christ's love, so that we can pursue his mission. And so let's talk about the mission. We are, our, our mission is to be ministers of reconciliation. Now, some of you don't like the word control. And so when we talked about these two translations earlier, compelled by Christ or controlled by Christ, some of you are thinking to yourself, I much prefer the NIV translation over the ESV. Why'd they use the word controlled? Right? We, we want to be free people and autonomous people. We don't like to be controlled. But the reality is, is we need direction. We need Christ's constraint to help guide us as we move forward in life. Megan and I, shortly after we got married, about three months into our marriage, we traveled to China on a 10-day vision trip. We were praying about whether maybe we'd be called to the mission field, and so we were going there to explore that together, and it was in the spring, and so when, when we were on our way home, we flew into Fargo, where we were living at the time, and we looked out the window, and there was water in a lot of places that it should not have been. So we were flying back into Fargo right into flood season. And it was one of those kind of historic floods, a really, really bad one. So, so bad that NDSU actually canceled classes for a week so that students and faculty and staff could help fight the flood. 
And so we were loading sandbags and we were piling them up at the edge of the river to try and keep the river where it should be. Because water, rivers in particular, are beautiful things. They're helpful things, right? They're helpful for economy. They're helpful for recreation. They're important for us to water crops and all that. They're helpful when they stay inside the banks of the river. But when they start to flood and they run over their banks, they can become destructive very quickly. And this is, in some ways, like the Christian life. We can be highly motivated, but if not directed toward Christ's mission, then we can become destructive. We need Christ's love to not only motivate and compel us, but also to control us so that we're working toward his mission. And so I want to mention two ways that Christ's love directs us toward his mission. The first is the manner in which we complete the mission, how we conduct ourselves. If we are compelled by Christ's love and no longer live for ourselves, but the one who died for us, then we need to ask ourselves, how is it that Christ loved us? What was his manner of love? Our lives should mirror his conduct and his love. His love was sacrificial and servant-hearted. It was compassionate and it was kind. And here's why that matters. Because earlier I mentioned that Paul was so confident in his own identity that he didn't care what people thought. He was so confident. He knew who he was. He knew who God had said that he was. And he wanted others to be convinced of the same. And we need to have that kind of confidence, that kind of conviction about who we are in Christ. But that can sometimes be done in ways that do not honor Christ or his love. We can become combative and we can become cruel. And then we can claim that we're just being a prophetic voice to our culture. We can use the fuel to drive in the wrong direction. And the river of our zeal can be flooding the banks and the results can be destruction. And that will be a temptation for us. As we see culture become more combative to one another and some become increasingly more cruel to Christians, we may want to harden ourselves and to respond in a similar way. But that is not the love of Christ. And we are now controlled by his love. We live for him, the one who died so that we might live. So we should love Christ with deep conviction about who we are. And because we are so convinced of his love for us, then we should also love with his compassion as well. The second thing I want to talk about is our role as reconcilers in completing the mission. In verses 18 through 20, we get this great summary of the work that we get to be a part of as God's people. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and therefore we now have the ministry of reconciliation. And the word reconcile is used often in the scriptures, especially by Paul, and it's, it's a word that he, he tries to get this big idea and summarize it in one word. Simply what he's trying to talk about is that reconciliation is the process where two parties that were at enmity or strife with one another, that those things have been um, worked through, that those things have been overcome, and unity has come again. They've been reconciled back to one another. This happens between us and God. It also happens between two people. Because of our idolatry and our rebellion and our sin toward God, there's enmity, there's strife. He is perfectly holy and we are not. And not only are we not perfect, but we actively rebel against him and his design in the world. But God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ. And now we have the message of reconciliation. We are ministers of reconciliation in the world. God making his appeal to us, through us, to others. 
And so Paul writes in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In a fractured world, we have a message of reconciliation. We believe that reconciliation is possible through Jesus. As Maggie said earlier, if we don't believe that that's true, then we don't have, like, what are we doing, right? We believe that reconciliation is possible. It is available. There's power in the gospel, and we are ministers of this message. Reconciliation is possible between two people. It is possible between God and humanity. When we are reconciled to God, then the brokenness that is inside of us can be repaired as well. If we believe that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus, then we will be compelled to invite others to be reconciled to him as well. And I love how here in, from verses 11 through 20, we see Paul building toward this appeal. In verse 11, he's saying, hey, I know who I am. And I hope it becomes clear to you as well. But I'm, I'm not even going to commend myself to you, but just let me explain to you who I am. So he starts a bit noncommittal. He's kind of soft. He's saying, I'm not going to persuade you. I'm not going to commend myself. But let me just tell you about who I am. And he starts to write about Christ's love. And he starts to write about the reconciliation that's available. And I feel like as he's writing, he just cannot help himself. As this argument builds and builds and builds and overflows to this statement, we implore you, be reconciled to God. And I want that for us. That we would grow to love Jesus so much to be so convinced of our identity in him that we believe reconciliation is available and we implore those around us to be reconciled to God as well. We are just over two months away from our public launch on March 5th and I was talking with a church planter recently and I asked him for advice on our launch today. What what should we be thinking about? What should we be focusing on? And what he said to me was that more than anything else, what has to happen by March 5th is that our church must begin to see that our mission is more and more for the people outside of this room than just the people who have already come inside of it. What we have to become as a church is a people who are for those who are not yet here. Now, we've been through a lot as a church. We certainly have. And it's created, I think, just a supernatural level of unity among us. We are deeply committed to one another. And that is a good thing. That's a great thing. But it can also be hard sometimes to welcome people into something like that if we're not ready and prepared to do so. If we're not as deeply committed to those not here yet as we are to those who are here. So we must be committed to being ministers of reconciliation to those who are not yet among us. That is the number one shift that must happen in the next two months for us. To become as a people, people who see this church as a means of reconciliation between others and God through Jesus. And so, let me summarize what I have said so far about our theme, prayer for this year from verse 14. Christ's love compels us. In 2023, we are praying that River City Church would be motivated by Christ's love to pursue his mission as ministers of reconciliation. And our motivation will come because of two things. We will know our identity in Jesus and we will know that Christ died for us. Our mission will be pursued in a manner, or in the manner of Christ's love, we will conduct ourselves like Christ. And second, we will be ministers of reconciliation. And so now, I actually want to give you extended time to respond to that. If we're going to have a month where we focus on fasting and on prayer, I actually want to give you some time to pray. 
And so uh, those journals we handed out earlier, I actually want to encourage you to use that right now. We're going to give you about five minutes to just respond. And so you can pull that out. You can pray. You can journal. You can respond in whatever way that you want to. And, and I realize that for some of you, you're thinking, hey, five minutes is not nearly enough time for me to be thinking about all the things that we just talked about. And others of you are thinking, five minutes of quiet in this room of people feels awkward to me. And I realize you're, there's people at all sides of that spectrum, okay? But we're going to give you five minutes. And even if you don't know what to do, ask God's Spirit to just help you in this time. Pray journal, respond, and then I'm going to come up and lead us in a time of communion in a little bit. So go ahead and take those five minutes to respond as you think about how Christ's love will compel you this year and how you'll participate in this mission with us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.